I'm Luis Lizarazzo, and this is Shedding Light Within Entertainment. Each episode, we'll discuss the humans behind the entertainment industry and explore the issues and topics that are impacting their lives. On this episode of Shedding Light Within Entertainment, we're going to speak with a very special performer, Peter Fanone. Peter was kind and brave enough to open up about a number of really important topics during this conversation, including how to stay connected with others, how to keep pushing yourself, and a little bit about mental health. So thanks so much, Peter, and here we go. Peter Fanone, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. I am so lucky to work with you. How did we come to work together? So um, essentially, I, when the pandemic hit, um, going back in time, uh, Tessa Faye was somebody I had never met before. Um, I had dropped my credit card on a uh, subway platform in the city before the pandemic started. And um, this guy, Will Wendell, um, who I've now become really good friends with and worked with a lot, he picked up my credit card. He messaged me on Facebook. It turns out that he uh, lived a block away from me and we, I dropped my credit card in a completely different neighborhood. And he was like, Hey, I've got it. Do you want to come pick it up? And so I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, where do you live? I told him. And then we figured out that we were neighbors. I go to meet him at a bar, a block from my place. And it turns out that he is, uh, not only an actor, but also a screenwriter and a playwright. And, uh, he was doing a reading of a play called Will's War that he had written about his great grandfather. And he asked me to be in it. He was like, oh, you're an actor. This is crazy. So I agreed and I did a first reading of it. And Ted Wold, this Meisner teacher, was there. And at the end of the read, um, he came up to me and he was like, oh, I, I loved your read. I'd love to get your resume. I shot him my resume. And then I didn't hear back from him uh, after that. I was like, okay, cool. It was a fun experience. Ted teaches Will. And then fast forward a couple months and the pandemic hits and I had just finished my off-Broadway uh, debut. I had a big role. I was about to do my victory lap and go take meetings with agents and uh, managers around the city. And then I was suddenly in a car headed home to Virginia. But my relationship with Will had continued and about a week or two into the pandemic, I'm sitting at my house in Virginia being like, the industry's closed. When am I ever going to go back to work? What is this new reality? Um, I felt frustrated and, and kind of lost in a sense because I had this victory in my mind of this great part. And finally, after two years of grinding since grad school, I was going to be um, hopefully repped and, and continuing on to uh, TV and film. And he just reaches out and he's like, hey, we are doing a reading of Hamlet tonight for with this play reading series with a friend of mine. And we're all students of Ted. And uh, would you be available? We had the, Hamlet's uh, father um, backed out at the last second. Would you be willing to play him? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I come in, I do the ghost of Hamlet's father and Ted's there. And then Ted reaches out to one of the students and he's like, a bit um, 
he's very humble and he's like, well, I don't want to reach out directly, but would one of you be willing to talk to Peter about being in my class? And I, and they sent me an email and they were like, Ted wants you to join his Meisner class. And he was wondering if you'd be available. And so I said, you know, what am I doing? There's, there's a, uh, never, everybody's starting to use zoom. Now he was doing all of his classes online. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And I do that. And then I hear from Ted that um, he works with this woman named Tessa Fay. And Tessa does it all. She's casting director, producer. You know her well as uh, too. And she was doing these Saturday seminars. And so I decided on a whim. It's a pay what you can show up to her thing. And she talks about the industry. And she essentially uh, goes through... Uh, all of the do's and don'ts of this new era. She had been doing Zoom as her business model for nearly a decade or some form of virtual online coaching. And so she knew all of it. She was ahead of the curve. And I kept, uh, you know, I would always have questions ready. She noticed me um, right away. And Ted um, wrote a really nice rec on my behalf to start working with her. So I started, um, I hired her essentially as my coach on a weekly basis, we'd meet. And my goals across the pandemic were, you know, I think that I couldn't be more trained. I have grad school experience at one of the trap training programs for theater, um, American Conservatory Theater. And I went to Georgetown and I graduated with honors and I have a lot of various skills that have um, brought me to this point. And I felt pretty confident about what my place in the industry and she agreed with me and so we kind of set out on this plan to incrementally introduce me to as many people as possible and then i suddenly was um, getting casting uh, auditions from her for projects that she was working on um, underground uh, and they're all people in her network through ted or her um, or both of them i started doing a cold reads and call black callbacks class with her and then she told me about you, Luis, and said that you were getting, you were pivoting um, from your marketing background and, and your uh, master's from American and going into representing talent um, upfront and personal, and that you were starting something new, uh, this new idea of um, coming to people where they are and representing people not to change them and create some idea of who they need to be for the industry, but saying like, how does the industry meet the person? And I really love that aspect of, of your work. Um, and so then you and I met and uh, it, it just felt immediately like we gelled. We had so many things in common and also just uh, having time in DC. I grew up in the DC area and you being at American um, running even by my house, uh, basically at, at certain points, um, and our paths hadn't crossed yet. So it felt in some ways like fate. Um, and so from there, we just, we took our first meeting and it seemed to gel really well. And here we are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well told. I didn't know some of that. So thanks for sharing. I love absolutely. hearing how you came to know Ted and Tessa. They are great. I loved taking that class with you. I got to see you in action. You are such a talented actor um, and writer. Why don't we talk a little bit about things you're working on now? What are you Absolutely. working on? So uh, I've been in a lot of projects since the beginning of the pandemic through Tessa, 
primarily um, where she has been casting me. I, I did a show of uh, drumming with Anubis, which was a new work by David Templeton. And this was again through Will and Ted um, was essentially producing it through his studio. And I, we really hit the ground running with that project because it was doing an entire uh, play while the world was ending all around us. We were those people doing a Zoom play and it was kind of, it was the beginning. It was just the beginning of the summer. So this was a new medium for a lot of us still. And we came up with this idea of, of really being using the technology to its limits. So we implemented Zoom backgrounds and this was still really new. And now it's almost a given that you have Zoom backgrounds in a play that's going up on online. And we got green screens. We got props for the entire team. And I had a significant um, character in this ensemble piece. And I was playing um, this Southern guy who's, um, you know, a recovering alcoholic, works at this um, camp supply store, chews tobacco, the whole nine yards. Like I'm in a floral pattern shirt with a straw hat and I'm pretty much out of my mind. And we're all these guys gathered around this campfire um, worshiping this death metal rock star who just died. And we create this, uh, we get lanterns for the campfire to make it seem like we're all in the same room together. Um, we get props, uh, identical props for all of us so that when I pass the talking stick, for instance, from one side of the room to the other, the other person in the other frame can pick up the talking stick and it looks like we're all there together. I heard and about it, that. That's yeah. Great. And it was really, it was a really great experience. And it also opened me up since it was such a, um, you know, grassroots production. It wasn't the industry uh, led thing or an off Broadway show. I could kind of take the reins on not only acting, but I started helping Will out with the marketing of it. And I created this whole um, program that had um, graphic design work and um, also created show themed cocktails and um, food. And then I got a friend of mine who paints in LA uh, to paint artwork based on the show and his inspiration. And he actually, the show's location was, uh, it took place in Joshua Tree. And he, went to Joshua Tree because he lives in L.A. and he painted physically in the desert and he donated the pieces um, to help not for profits. And also he like took a little bit of a cut for himself, but it was mainly to help um, people who were struggling and in need. And um, we auctioned them off. And of course, it, it, it was the we're selling them for a, a fairly high price. And um, we sold, uh, I think, two out of the three of them. And then the third one wasn't quite selling. And Ted, like in his infinite generosity, uh, bought one of the pieces. And then my girlfriend was like, Christmas is coming up. I haven't gotten a gift for my boyfriend yet. And she uh, bought the piece that's sitting behind us right there. So that's Anubis. Um, and that was my first project. So it, it was like a from a business standpoint and also an acting standpoint, it was a huge success. We had an off-Broadway sized crowd to every single Zoom performance. And then continuing on from there, I was doing a ton of different readings, um, uh, a bunch of uh, like any new work projects that were coming off the ground. Um, Tessa was putting slotting me into those spots. And then um, from there, I also started investing in VO equipment. 
and I bought a microphone, as you can see. I bought an interface. I bought the software. I recorded a reel for myself um, through a, a group that was recommended to me by a casting director and VO, Roger Becker. And all of this was essentially word of mouth. I asked my friend, Dina Laura, who was in our cold reads class, um, if she had a rec because she was really into it. I did my reel within a week. I uh, was in a, uh, on the phone with Alan Duncan at Innovative um, to be represented for VO. And I've since been getting a lot of auditions for him, um, for big stuff like Liberty Mutual and other things like that. And then um, you and I met a little bit before that, and I've been getting auditions from you for commercial work. And so I've been extremely busy um, across the board and and essentially like it's been a dream i i've been working consistently on project to project uh and all of it feels like extremely fulfilling work and then on top of that i've been really able to nurture myself really do some self-exploration i i didn't realize how burnt out i felt by new york in some ways when when all this hit and how i really needed a breather and i needed a um a time to essentially reclaim my agency for myself um about for you, Peter. yeah for my my own confidence in the industry because when i came in even after all the training and everything i think that's in some ways the fact that i had a, a microscope on me for three years in grad school had actually made me less confident not more confident and so i would walk into an audition always so like apologizing for myself and i was always walking in extremely anxious and um feeling like one moment could ruin my career. And sometimes that was the narrative that agents would put on us where they were like, well, make sure that if you mess this one thing up, your career could be over. Or I have all these stories of people who are blacklisted. And between you, between Tessa and Ted and everybody who's come into my life, this network that we've created is extremely collaborative and it's extremely, um, it's, it's not competitive. It's, people wanting to help each other as artists. And I've really come to appreciate that and essentially have become unafraid to stand on my own and, and even try new things that I didn't necessarily have confidence in. Like I've started engineering my own music. I'm also a musician and I write songs. I wrote a song for my girlfriend um, during the snowpocalypse that happened this year. And I made a music video using new software that I pushed, purchased. And I'm in the midst of mastering this track that I recorded on my own um, as we speak. And uh, I'm going to put that out in a couple weeks. And I'm really excited. I think it's a great song. But I would have never had the confidence for that if I didn't feel like I had a nurturing community who believed in me. Um, and I was always going to an engineer to work on my stuff. But I'm like, you know what? It's time. So I learned that. And then I also signed up for... Um, a screenwriting class. Another friend of Ted, Russell DeGrazier, um, who freelances for folks like HBO, he was starting a beginner's crash course for actors on how to screenwrite. And I was like, you know what? What else am I doing? Another opportunity to grow. I'd never thought of myself. I had written a play before for grad school, but I never really thought like, oh, I'm going to be a screenwriter. Or I'm going to incorporate that into my skill set. And so I went for it. And after about two weeks of um, playing with different plot ideas, I settled on talking about my grandfather. Uh, he uh, was an Italian 
um, boy shepherd in the fields um, of this small nothing town in the mountains um, called Settefrati uh, in, in Abruzzi. And he had no formal education. And when he was um, just a couple years old, his mother abandoned him and his um, father left for America and stopped sending checks back to Italy. And here is this boy and his brother, basically orphaned and sent to an aunt and uncle who uh, the aunt, for all intents and purposes, was abusive. And um, he was also rebellious and had a lot of issues growing up because he didn't have a, any sort of familial life or identity. And, and probably she, abandonment issues. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And she used to, you know, he used to steal fruit from people's gardens and stuff. It very... You know, now that you think about it, he would, but he would be put in the, the town jail and the uh, my this aunt would string him up upside down and the, she would beat my grandfather for anything that he was doing. There was just a sense of really brutal parenting going on from this aunt and uncle of his. And then the, uh, if all of that wasn't enough. Um, in 1943, the Nazis invaded Italy and they took over his village because it was a strategic and you would think, like, why would they ever even come into this place? It's so isolated. They have a dialect that barely sounds like Italian. And I can't I can speak Italian, but I can't understand what they're saying for the most part. And the there is this abbey called Monte Cassino made entirely of marble where the Benedictine monks um, had been worshiping for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was this one um, kind of gem world heritage site. Uh, and the Nazis used it as an encampment for themselves, thinking, oh, the Americans and the British would never bomb this beautiful um, piece of history. And so they out in this marble uh, it, it almost reminds me of Gondor um, in Lord of the Rings. Um, and sure enough, after about a year of trying to take over the uh, the Abbey, they were not in the ally to get to the Nazis because the, it was a uh, position on a huge hill. So they were being mowed down by machine guns. They bombed it to the ground and completely leveled the place and killed a lot of innocent people inside. But this is essentially the town next to my grandfather's. And in the meantime, these Nazis were using his town as a little supply packing station where they would put mules um, full of food and take it towards Monte Cassino um, to continue to keep them fed and supported. And they were conscripting all of the um, able men and women in the town for uh, forced labor, essentially. And the town nearby was actually turned into an Italian concentration camp where the Jews were um, kept, uh, held captive. It was a free, it, it was a town that wasn't, they weren't um, killing Jews uh, per se, but they were forcing them to work and not allowing them to leave. Um, and he, meanwhile, his brother was of age and he was 18 years old. So, uh, what they were doing, the Nazis, when they came in, if if you were too old to be sent to the uh, the front lines, they would force you to work. And if you were 18 or around that age, they would literally put you in a uniform and send you to the front lines. 
because they wanted the Italians to die. They didn't want the Germans to die. So they were willing to put them in the uniform. So my grandfather here is he's about 15, 16. So he's not quite of age, but his brother is in danger. So they end up living in these uh, caves outside of the town in hiding, um, trying to not be found so that his brother isn't killed. And I was like, this is a story that I need to tell. And even if it's just for myself and my family, it just felt like the thing to focus on. And I felt like if anything, I hope it's good. But if anything, I want it to be a gift for them and for him. Um, And and, for you. Yeah. And for me. And so I've been focusing on that for the past six months as well. In addition to my acting and my um, music. I love that so much. That is so cool. Um, I'm sorry. I know you recently lost your grandfather. Um, What an amazing way to honor him. I I think that's a really great way to honor his legacy. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's um, the timing is it's sad that I I wish that he was at a point in his life where I could have showed it to him, but he also had dementia and he had had multiple strokes. So he was in pain, I think, in the last year or two of his life. And but I know that now he can really see it um, in, a, in a new way because he's he's an energy force that I, I think is in my has come into my life. And I uh, I finished the second draft of the screenplay. I'm working on a third draft now and I'm hoping in the next um, couple months to have it ready to be read um, in front of an audience with my family there and then. From there, I really want to I want to go to Italy and I want to film this movie with local actors speaking the dialect. Oh, Um, my God. That's so cool. That's such a great idea. Yeah. So that's that's my hope. Um, But yeah, that's I think that's a taste of what I've really been working on. But I've been really busy and I feel um, I feel really fulfilled and ready for the future in a way that I wouldn't have happened if the pandemic hadn't hit, at least for a while. So I'm really thankful that I haven't gotten sick and I got my first dose of the vaccine um, a week and a half ago. Uh, I've just been really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And I think while you've worked really hard, you've been preparing for this and you're really making the most of what has been, I think, a difficult time for a lot of people. I mean, we've had a lot happened throughout the year. You specifically have had a lot happen throughout the year, but I think um, mentally, spiritually, you seem ready and I'm really proud of you. I know that takes a lot of work. Is there anything you want to say about that? Um, Well, I think it's been a a huge journey for me ever since um, the age of 14. I was diagnosed with um, OCD and generalized anxiety disorder And then when I got to high school, um, I also uh, was diagnosed with ADHD. And uh, it was really hard in the beginning when I was that age, because I and I also felt like our understanding as a world about um, psychological chronic issues without just writing them off as just, oh, that person's just out of their mind or crazy or they just have this thing that's a part of them without really fully understanding and unpacking it. Um, I thought that I was losing my mind when this first happened. And I was 
playing into all of the worries that would come into my head because my OCD would really manifest as intrusive thoughts and then followed by compulsions where I would see visions of hurting people around me or feel guilt about things that I might have done in my past or uh, feeling this sense of catastrophic dread throughout my life to the point where I was almost debilitated to uh, I, I almost flunked out of my eighth grade uh, um, classes. But I persevered through that. Um, I started seeing a therapist and then I got into Georgetown Prep, which is this really competitive um, all boys school in Maryland as a boarding student. And I got medication. Um, I continued to see a guidance counselor throughout my four years there. But I think that over time I was mitigating the symptoms of what I was going through, but I would still have spells where like maybe for a couple of years, I would mostly feel okay. And I was on my ADHD medication and I was seeing a therapist, but I didn't still fully understand how to grasp my OCD um, tendencies. And whenever I was tired, I'm already vulnerable or in some sort of state where I didn't feel myself, my um, OCD would really latch onto that and um, take things that didn't necessarily exist uh, and create this paranoia or fear that I've done something wrong or that I will do something wrong or that something terrible is going to happen unless I take action. And it feels like a fight or flight response, not unlike a panic attack. And uh, I think I would have these spells and I would not know what to do with it. And I would just ride it out through the entire length of it where it could be two months of me having panic attacks multiple times a day. And even and it would attack anything I loved too. So when I would be in a show, and if it, if I started having um, an OCD uptick, I would suddenly go from being this kid who felt completely comfortable being on stage and loved what I did, to having panic attacks about forgetting my lines or um, f fears that I'll say something taboo on stage or that I'll suddenly develop. Uh, Tourette's disorder or that uh, I'll embarrass myself or be humiliated. And that continued kind of on and off where I would feel better and I'd be like, okay, finally that's over. And then it would come back. And even in grad school, um, I was still working on it. I, I had been cast in Hamlet with John Douglas Thompson, this Tony Award nominee um, in this 1200 seat theater at ACT. It was my first Lord A regional theater gig. And I was, again, I'm under this um, intense anxiety and fear that I was going to be fired at any point for uh, messing up a line or saying something terrible in front of all these people. And I would sometimes have panic attacks where the lights would come on in my line. It would be time to say my lines. And I was experiencing a panic attack, but I wouldn't show it to anybody else. And it would be very internalized. And I, by some miracle, I got through it and but I still hadn't learned to really, I would go to somebody and say, I want to be on Prozac or something to help me mitigate the symptoms um, artificially, but naturally from myself, I hadn't learned. Uh, and, it, and it came, uh, it took me a while, but once I, I think once the pandemic really hit, something started to change where I, I think I had the time to finally understand the nature of what I was going through. And, and it's still going to be a lifelong battle where I'll catch myself worrying about something and not realize that it's actually my OCD creating something that wasn't there. Um, 
and it can attack anything at any moment. It shapeshifts. Um, Eckhart Tolle, this uh, philo modern philosopher, calls it a pain body. And essentially your pain body can lie dormant for a period of time, but then it activates and it's almost like you're being um, possessed by something that's not you. And I think a lot of people who go through depression or anxiety of any form have this these spells where they can't really explain it, but they don't feel like themselves anymore. Oh, and yeah, I get that. I, I have generalized anxiety and I'm very lucky to have had really amazing therapists, one of whom I lost at the beginning of COVID. And I, oh you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out what I was missing um, with the new therapist. And now finally I have this amazing therapist that has taught me these like crazy practical tools, like Ericksonian hypnosis and, um, acupuncture point tapping and you know yeah, self-induced emdr and it's amazing like i don't think 10 years ago or when you were in eighth grade however long ago that was that these you know that the brain was even understood as well as it is now to be able to really get to the root cause and the trauma that may be triggering or intensifying these different mental um, um, mental dispositions. Mm -hmm. And I, I, uh, I think that one of the beginnings of my processing of all this, I actually wrote a solo show as a capstone to my um, grad school experience. And it was the first time that I would talk to people sometimes about my, uh, my OCD or my anxiety, but I had always had this fear, especially growing up in DC where people are always kind of looking behind their backs of being labeled as crazy or out of my mind or should be ashamed or um, if I talked about what I was going through or maybe people would be like, oh, he's a, a basket case or like don't hire him because he has something in his personal life that is going on. And for me, I it was really um, started the beginning of my destigmatization for myself of having OCD where I wrote um, I wrote this solo show about a monologue, a series of monologues at every pivotal point in my life when OCD and anxiety was had me under its spell and then points where I started to come out from that um, and to guide the solo show. I actually I would have a monologue and then I would have a song inspired by the monologue in that point in my life. And then I uh, after I did that and performed it for everybody, um, a couple uh, grad school classmates came up to me afterwards and like one guy and I was completely shocked because I felt very vulnerable and raw and like it, it was also um, a very workshop style performance where I was reading the line still and I was still working on the show but this uh, guy came up to me and he had tears in his eyes and he was like I've been going through this my entire life and thank you so much for saying something um, because he felt totally alone. Um, and that's, you hear stories about this all the time. Uh, people, no matter what they're going through up to a certain point, and I think in American culture, we don't talk about things that openly. And we're at this precipice, I think, where the conversation is shifting. And now people are free to open their minds and, and speak what they have in their hearts. And um, as people, the, the, the phrase, tell your truth now. But uh, 
I try I I felt great in that moment to share to not feel alone and then to see podcasts are coming out now about OCD and stories about every subject matter of it and articles that you can just find on the web um but when I finished the show I was like you know what I have to take something from this and create um a lasting legacy for myself uh, as a processing um of the experience that I've had and so I wrote I took the songs that I wrote, I finished all of them, and then I went to my studio engineer and we recorded a whole album. Um, and then I asked my painter friend who did this Anubis painting to paint another uh, artwork piece, um, this time taking a brain scan of a brain with OCD and creating um, a sort of an expressionist piece about that. And that's what you see behind you here. Um, and the, so that, that's, that's the artwork for my album obsessed, which I released at the end of grad school, um, beginning of my first year in New York city. And then I started performing that. Sorry, you're muted. Is it available on Spotify? Yeah, it's all obsessed available on by Peter Fanon. And then we'll share the images on social so that you can see the beautiful art behind. The Thank mirror. you. And uh, I was really happy with that. I started, I performed um, with a band that I had hired essentially to uh, go to the Rockwood and, um, and a few different locations, uh, Bowery Electric in New York City before the pandemic hit. And it was always like expensive and I never made any money on, on performing because like you don't really, I mean, anybody who's an actor or musician, like we spend thousands and thousands of dollars to do work for free. Um, and until the point where you really make it, you, you have no money until you have all the money, you know what I mean? Um, so I, I've since, um, I released this album on Spotify and then I also have released a few singles since then. Um, I'm about to shoot, um, a music video for sound your heart out, which is my latest, uh, song. And, uh, I'm going to Texas to actually film that with Will. Um, and yeah. So I, I think that music for me has been a huge um, opportunity for me to process emotionally what I'm going through in an artistic way, in a way that like acting allows me to take on other people's um, challenges and struggles and, and create a sense of uh, empathy and then also allow my emotions and my personal life to filter through that. But in some way, music feels different where there is no mask that I'm wearing when I'm performing. There's no, when I write a song, it's always deeply personal for me about what I'm going through. And I feel an opportunity and a, a permission to speak frankly about what my experience is. Um, and with music in a way that sometimes it's hard for me to do in my personal life. And now, I mean, just talking with you now, it's, I've obviously come a long way in terms of my ability to speak uh, about what I go through. It's amazing. Um, thank you so much. I'm absolutely. so grateful for to you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to have my voice be shared um, and a platform for all of us. Yeah, it's been, that's one thing I was actually just thinking when you were talking about what music does for you versus performing. You know, the blog is where I share a lot of my own personal thoughts, but I see this podcast as a platform to help you share your voice and your story. So what's next for you? What do you want to do next, Peter? 
Well, uh, I I have a lot of plans, and I, as you can tell, I've cast a very wide net. And between um, you and Alan at Innovative, and I'm working on getting an agent as well to supplement um, all of my goals. And then Tessa constantly working with me. I mean, I I I am going all out on every front, and I know that something is going to stick. And the seeds have been planted. And in terms of one of the best lessons I think I learned in the pandemic is the importance of horizontal networking versus vertical and creating a sense of friendship and collaboration with my friends and the people in the industry who are my age and my contemporaries, or even in the same position as me. And and without seeing it as a transactional thing, I, I know that my friendships and um, the kindness of and just taking the time to reach out to somebody and tell them like, Hey, I really love that scene you did today. And I, cause I love it when they do it for me. And I've tried to cultivate a sense of mindfulness and appreciation of others in my work. I think in a way that maybe before in the pandemic, we were all clutching at our pearls saying, thinking that this is a, um, one of those zero sum worlds where the second that somebody wins something, they've taken it away from you or even like a very Trumpian way of seeing the world of like, people are out there to steal from you or take yeah. something you have. And I don't see it that way. No, and, you don't. And, I, because uh, I even think, I'm sorry to cut you off. No. I was part of a reading this week and the reading was made possible because you encouraged the screenwriter. You encouraged him to do a reading of his screenplay. And I think that's awesome, Peter. Yeah. And I, I really try to help my friends. My friend, Chris Wood, he, graduated in 1989 from Georgetown, but he was, he and I were in the same acapella group together and he just sent me the script and it's about the Spanish American war. And it's a period of history that I haven't heard about. And I also knew that the, that trusting Tessa with casting it um, and the team that we could assemble together um, would be incredible because as you saw in the room, um, so the screenplay is called Fagan and it's about this um, African-American soldier who, and this is a true story, defects from the American side and uh, supports the Filipino re rebels who are trying to fight off the imperialist American and Spanish soldiers from controlling their country. And to see the room, just every single person you could imagine being represented in one space from Latinx to Asian uh, and Pacific American and just Asian and Pacific in general. And then to have um, white people and black people and people, uh, you know, LGBTQ, every single thing about America is represented by rooms like that, where we can have so many different people from all walks of life who haven't necessarily met each other working towards a common goal. And so it felt beautiful to me. It felt like what I've been yearning to see as even a consumer and what we're starting to see now in the industry um, where we're, we're just, we're on this road to equity and um, I am willing to put some of my privilege on the line. Cause like, of course uh, it, it, it's different. It might be a different world now for a, a white actor going to audition for something, but that's good. That's the way that the world's supposed to be. We're all supposed to have um, an equal shot to share our stories. And it was not that way before. So it just felt so enriching to be 
a part of something like that. Yep. Amazing. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really proud of you. I know a casting associate, um, a casting associate credit for that. And you were also an actor in that piece. You, I think, have nothing but opportunity ahead of you as COVID starts to wind down and the world starts to open back up. And I really appreciate your time. And I just can't thank you enough for taking a chance on me. And I know that you're gonna find an agent soon and we're all gonna work together to just make sure that everybody knows. And the feeling is very mutual. And thank you so much for the opportunity to embrace me um, as a human being and, and nurture myself without trying to change me or, or any, you know, trying to just bring the best out of every person that you bring to um, very out of talent. And it's clear that you have made this your mission and it's a form of healing um, for the world. And I, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much again to Peter Fanon for joining me on this episode. There were about 10 minutes at the beginning of this conversation where the two of us were just catching up like old friends. I cut that out for your sake, but he is such a great guy and I just love catching up with him. We look forward to sharing more stories like this with you on our next episode. From Variado Talent, I'm Luis Lizarazzo. See you next time.